Hi, and welcome to FIA's Market Voice Podcast. I'm FIA's President and CEO, Walt Lucan. This podcast and the two that accompany it features interviews with members of the 2023 class of the FIA Hall of Fame. FIA established the Hall of Fame in 2005 to commemorate our 50th anniversary. Inductees come from both the private and public sectors and include men and women who have contributed their time, talent, and passion to building the clear derivatives industry and supporting its members. In this podcast, we'll feature the following three individuals. Dan Driscoll joined NFA in 1982 when the self-regulatory organization was first established and has been a guiding force in building that organization into a world-class regulatory body over four decades. Scott Early made a name for himself as general counsel for the Chicago Board of Trade and was a key player in high-profile lawsuits that helped shape the legal framework of our industry. And Gideon Hirshton played a crucial role in the growth and development of the clear derivatives industry as a trader who embraced the power of technology in our markets. Daniel Driscoll is Special Policy Advisor for the National Futures Association, the self-regulatory body for the U.S. derivatives industry. Driscoll provides advice and guidance on regulatory and enforcement matters to NFA's senior management and board of directors. He joined NFA as a Vice President of Compliance in September 1982, when NFA began its operations. In February 2000, he was named NFA's Executive Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer. He became Chief Operating Officer in January 2003 and assumed his current role as Special Policy Advisor in 2020. Prior to joining NFA, Driscoll worked for the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission in multiple positions including Chief Accountant and Deputy Director in the Commission's Division of Trading and Markets. I want to welcome Dan Driscoll to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate Dan for being recognized by his industry peers with this incredible honor. Congratulations, Dan. Well, thank you all. It really is an honor. And I very much appreciate it. Dan, you have a, a long career that expands several parts of, of the industry, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, how'd you get your start in the industry? And if you could talk about some of your role models along the way, we'd be interested in that. When I was a senior in college back in the 70s, I applied for a job at the IRS. I got a call from a manager at the Commodity Exchange Authority who said he had been perusing a civil service register and noticed that he and I came from the same hometown, Benton Harbor, Michigan. So I interviewed with the CEA, got hired, and the rest is history. And I've had a lot of mentors in the industry, but I particularly want to point out John Manley at the CFTC and Bob Wilmoth, Dan Roth, and Tom Sexton here at NFA. They've all brought a lot of positives to my career, and I wouldn't be here today without them. Well, the CEA, so for, for those that don't know, that was the predecessor to the CFTC. So you were in Washington at the or were you based in Chicago? I'm just curious uh, where, where you started. So I, st I started in Chicago. I was a staff examiner in Chicago. After a couple of years, I transferred to Kansas City. By that time, the CFTC had an office. A few years later, I uh, transferred to DC. Tell us how you transitioned to the NFA in Chicago. I knew Bob Wilmoth uh, because I had been the chief accountant of trading and markets at the CFTC, so I had reasons to interact with him. 
and we always hit it off very well. So when he was trying to build a staff because he was going to be the CEO of NFA, he talked to me and asked me if I would have an interest of heading up the compliance department. And I thought about it for a little bit and said, well, that'd be a great opportunity. It's a new organization with a lot of lofty goals, and it'll be a great time working for Bob Wilma. Well, tell us about those early days. I mean, how many people were involved? You were part of that inner circle to start it and the amazing growth of an organization over the years. When I started, there were about 25 people already at NFA. There were some people that were handling memberships. We had some people in our treasurer's office, and we actually had a couple of examiners that had hired on to work for NFA. So it was about 25 when I started. And within about three years, we had built the staff up to about 300. So we did a lot of recruiting, a lot of training, a lot of on-the-job learning to build up that quickly at a new organization. And it's probably the most exciting time of my career because we accomplished so much so quickly and still have a lot of great friends. NFA celebrated its 40th anniversary recently. Um, but looking back on those 40 years, like what would you say are highlights of, in your career that you would wanna, wanna tell the audience? One thing that I am really proud of is that we were able to build up an enforcement staff very quickly. You know, my, my philosophy is I'd much rather uh, prevent a violation than prosecute. But as we all know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be violations. We were able to build up quite quickly to have the capability of taking strong disciplinary cases when it was necessary. And we developed a close relationship, not only with the CFTC, but with uh, local and national law enforcement as well. What is it that kept you going as a regulator and what, what makes a good, successful regulator? Well, you know, I, I think what, what makes a successful regulator is that you have to have people at the top that understand the mission, are working together to try to come up with a good, good solution to any problem that comes up. That's why it was so helpful that when I started at NFA, I had a great working re relationship, not only with Bob, but with Dan Roth and other, Regina Thole, and others that started early in the organization. And we all had a common goal, to help the industry, to let them learn, to know what the rules were so that if they wanted to comply, they would comply, but to be ready to step in and take swift action if they committed serious violations. For a young person that's starting out, and NFA is, is wonderful about hiring young individuals and auditors coming out of college, but what advice do you give them coming into our industry? And what, what do you love about our industry that you pass on to the next generation? So what I tell to each new training class that comes to NFA, the number one piece of advice is be inquisitive, ask questions. I'd rather have some of the questions than all of the answers. And if you do that, you, you know, you're never gonna be caught unawares and you're gonna learn about the business and it's gonna make you a better uh, employee of NFA and a better participant in the community. Dan, I know how important education is to our industry, and you've served on the Institute for Financial Markets, the IFM, for many years, and in fact, since its foundations. Uh, tell us why this is such an important effort. Well, first of all, I'm a big advocate of training and education in the derivatives industry. And the fact is, is that IFM, uh, and before that, the Futures Industry Institute, has been creating quality top-notch programs and products for more than 30 years now. 
And it's been a real honor to serve on that board. And the industry is a lot better for having that organization be one of the ones that is a leader in the area of education. On behalf of our entire industry, I want to congratulate you on this wonderful honor. You've contributed so much to our industry in making sure our markets are well-regulated and resilient and safe. And on behalf of all of FIA's members and the public, I just want to congratulate you. So thank you so much. Scott Early began his futures industry career as outside litigation counsel for the Chicago Board of Trade and subsequently became lead counsel for the CBOT in various suits arising from the Hunt Brothers' silver market manipulation. In 1983, Early left the law firm Moylan and Early to become general counsel of the CBOT. A year later, he became general counsel of the Board of Trade Clearing Corporation. He was also an officer of AMPAC, the CBOT's political action committee. He consulted with members of Congress and their staff regarding financial market legislation and personally testified before several congressional committees regarding the pending financial legislation. In 1994, Early returned to private law as partner of Foley and Laudner, where he continued his financial market consulting and litigation. He later became general counsel for the Kansas City Board of Trade, providing counsel to numerous exchanges. Well, I want to recognize and welcome Scott Early to the FI Hall of Fame. And congratulations, Scott, for being recognized by your industry peers with this incredible honor. Thank you very much. I do consider it an incredible honor. I, and I'm, I'm very humbled and pleased to be a part of this group. Well, Scott, I'd like to start maybe at the beginning of your career, if that's okay. And uh, you know, everybody has an interesting background and, and start. Um, including, you know, people who may have been mentors or role models as you as you began your career. You know, bring us back to the beginning. How, how did you get into our industry, and who were some of the most impactful people in your career? Well, the way I got into the industry was that I was available as uh, a legislative a legislative, excuse me, as a litigation counsel uh, to John Stassen when he became general outside counsel to the Chicago Board of Trade. And immediately that was a case that was in front of the Supreme Court, Tamari v. Bache, which had to do with jurisdiction of the Commodity Exchange Act on an international level. Uh, but shortly thereafter, it evolved into the all the litigation coming out of the Hunt Silver litigation and uh, manipulation in the late 70s. So I really got into it uh, with one foot, and then all of a sudden I'm swimming in the deep end with uh, John, who was regulatory counsel, but John didn't like litigation. He didn't have much to do with the actual trial work. And suddenly the Board of Trade for the first time was involved in a great deal of that. So that was my beginning in the industry, and John got me involved, and bless him, he's no longer with us, but uh, I will always be thankful to him for giving me the chance and giving me that opportunity. Were there other notable individuals throughout your career that uh, really made an impact and uh, you know affected your trajectory uh, in your career? Unquestionably, uh, more than anyone else, Tom Donovan at the Board of Trade. Uh, Tom was a uniquely talented individual in bringing consensus out of chaos. And that was what was absolutely necessary on a day-to-day -day basis at the Chicago Board of Trade where all the members were on the premises every day and everybody was participating every minute in their own way and in their own vested interest. Uh, and then when you had on top of that, when you had to coordinate with the Merck and the other exchanges in Washington with respect to legislation and regulatory matters, uh, Tom always was ahead of the game in figuring out how to bring everybody together in the best possible manner 
uh, and just an absolute genius in that regard. And I learned so much from working with him. Well, let's look back at your career. I mean, you've already noted, you know, Supreme Court jurisdictional battles that you fought with the CFTC and the CEA, um, the, the Hunt brothers, um, and the formidable years with the Chicago Board of Trade and all the growth that happened in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, but looking back, are there a couple notable achievements that you would say that really define your legacy? Well, I only had one case in my entire 40 years that my wife liked, and it had nothing to do with the financial industry. I represented uh, the Sierra Club uh, Legal Defense Fund and the New Mexico Citizens for Clean Air and Water in respect to putting sulfur dioxide scrubbers on the coal-fired plant at Four Corners, uh, New Mexico, which is the largest coal-fired uh, power plant in the world. Uh, but I don't think the people in the industry remember me in that regard. Um, I think that probably the thing that slipped under the radar most was in uh, 1984, with about five minutes notice, it became uh, general counsel and uh, executive officer of the Board of Trade Clearing Corporation, which was a very separate entity from the Board of Trade on an emergency basis. And uh, we ran that uh, that way for three months, and then I hung on as general counsel for another six. And I, I think that kind of slipped under the radar in, in the industry, but it was vitally important because I think people have forgotten how critical clearing is until something goes wrong. Then they remember it. I, I was reading your background and also noted the Zellner decision, which was a, an important decision about protecting customers and the need to make sure that funds were protected. And you were involved in that case as well. Tell us a little bit about that and and uh, you know how you were involved in that. Well, Zellner came up as a result of the fact that uh, Mr. Zellner was independently involved in selling swaps uh, or swap derivatives of some kind, but he was clearing them through my FCM client, Aleron. And uh, the CFTC, when they went after Mr. Zellner for what they considered to be fraud in the connection with the sale of the products, included the FCM client, Alron, uh, in the lawsuit. And so I got involved in uh, defending them. And one of the first things that occurred to me was that I'm not so sure that legislatively under the statute, the CFTC had jurisdiction over this product that people were calling swaps at the time. And I double checked it with the smartest lawyer I've ever worked with, Katie Turkla, and she agreed with me. And so we defended the case on that basis. Uh, we were in front of a very good judge, Judge Canelli, and he, after a three-day preliminary injunction hearing, said, look, there may have been fraud committed here, but it's not the CFTC's jurisdiction. There's a lot of other people who can take care of it. And that's the way that case came about in defining the fact that the CFTC had, I think, some 250 plus cases prior to Zellner where they'd successfully prosecuted swap deals. And now all of a sudden they had to go back to Congress and get the statute amended. You know, one of the things I love about our industry is it feels like a small family in many ways. It's a big industry, but everybody knows each other. Everybody's supportive of each other. So give us a little sense of why you sort of took to our industry. What, what was it about our industry that that uh, really you were passionate about and what, what made it so special to you? I went to law school with the idea of being a trial lawyer because that's what interested me, the challenge of taking a situation, a set of facts, making the best of them, presenting them in the best possible way and 
quite frankly, having a determination whether or not you won or lost. And that's how I got involved with the Board of Trade in the first place. But what I realized is, is that in essence, that's what everybody in the industry is doing every day. Uh, granted, there are what you and I would consider to be more conservative hedge clients, et cetera, but probably three quarters of the industry on any given moment is out there trying to better uh, themselves financially than everybody else in the market. And so when I got involved in the industry through the Board of Trade, it fascinated me that it was, if you would, the commercial equivalent of being on trial every day. Uh, and, and that's what attracted me to the industry and held my interest. And then, of course, the Board of Trade as an institution was such a uniquely political uh, situation in that regard. You had everything from individuals on up to the largest broker dealers and banks. Uh, so the combination of all that is what made it uh, appealing to me in the same way that a trial would. Any good floor stories of um you having to go down the floor and uh, any interesting anecdotes you may want to share? Yeah, I have to be careful on those because some of those are privileged. Uh, <laughs> and the, the thing about being a lawyer is privilege goes to the grave with you. We had an individual uh, down in the bond pit, which at that time was the largest futures contract in the world by a significant margin. And uh, this individual was, uh, how shall I say it? He, he was far and away the largest individual in the market. And he was such a significant part of the market that when I had a visit from the Japanese government, they thought he was an FCM rather than an individual. And there were occasions when I had to go down and remind him that regardless of whether he was one or 2% of the market on that day, he still had to conform to the same rules that everybody else did. Uh, and he, he always took it well because basically he meant well, but he, he would get carried away in the, in the heat of a moment sometimes. And uh, so I had a number of situations where I had to do that. But otherwise, really, it was once the trading started, it was amazing how much the floor policed itself. Uh, and the reason was very simple, because if somebody was cutting a corner, they were doing it to make money, which meant they were taking it out of somebody else's pocket that was right there. And so people used to laugh at the concept of self-regulation, but it really worked because on the it was on the most fundamental level, financially motivated. And if you were cutting a corner, you were cutting it out of somebody else's pocketbook. Well, Scott, as you think back on your career and it's distinguished with many achievements, for somebody just entering their career, you know, any good advice that you would share based on your wisdom? Well, I think that for somebody coming into the industry, uh, it's very, very useful for them to have a fundamental understanding of how the system works. In other words, I've seen a lot of people come in who are said, all I want to do is trade or all I want to do is do this. I've seen the ones in the long term who do well be more effective when they understand how the exchange works that they're trading on, when they understand just even in a general level what the regulatory structure is. Uh, I, I think it helps them both to understand how to make their business model better and more effective, but it also helps them to stay out of trouble, you know, because a lot of times the last thing they're worried about is are they contravening some obscure CFTC reg or whatever. You know, you can you can check with somebody at, at your clearing firm uh, with respect to regulatory compliance and get an answer fairly quickly. So my, my fundamental advice would be take a look at the whole picture. You may only be specializing in a small portion of it, but know what it is that the whole structure is so that you don't run afoul of it. 
Well, Scott, on behalf of the entire industry, I just want to thank you for all you've done to support our FIA and support our industry and, and the growth of our, our wonderful business. So thank you so much for being here and congratulations. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be amongst this group and I appreciate it. Gidon Hirschton began his career in 1978 as an independent floor trader at the Chicago Board of Trade, and over four decades played a crucial role in the growth and development of the industry, both as a trader and as a member of various industry boards and committees. In 1993, Hirschton founded GH Financials, a global FCM that served an array of industry participants through its offices in London, Chicago, Hong Kong, and India. In 2005, he founded the Hirschton Group, a diversified business group that grew to employ over 800 professionals in nine countries. He currently serves as a board member to the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange and has previously served on boards of Life and CME Group. I want to welcome Gidon Hirschton to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate him on being recognized by his industry peers with this incredible honor. Congratulations, Gidon. Thank you, Rod. Thank you very much. It's really, it's a big honor for me to be in there. So I really appreciate it. Well, I think you are known for being a incredible trader, building your own trading firm and uh, an FCM over the years. But I want to start at the beginning. So tell us where you grew up and how you got into our industry. It was so long, I don't remember. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I remember every every detail of it. So uh, I, after finishing his service in the, in the Israeli army, I went to study in, the, in Chicago and uh, I met my wife, Joanne, in Chicago. And uh, after we got married, my wife started working for her brother, uh, which was a member of the Chicago Board of Trade, Ray Kahneman. And uh, she was working there and she was telling me all about her work and it sounded like a, it's an amazing thing. So I think I'll go down to the Board of Trade and just take a look, see what's all about. I had no idea what's about derivatives and trading, nothing. So I went down and I remember going to the, to the gallery that was overlooking the trading floor and the Chicago Board of Trade. And I was looking down and I see all those people are screaming, yelling and moving and hand signals. I had no idea what they're doing. I had no idea what they're trading, but I took a look and I just loved it. I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's really what I really want to do. And I really fell in love with it from the first second. Back then, in those days, you couldn't rent a seat. You had to buy a seat. So obviously I didn't have enough money to buy seats. And uh, so I had some savings, but it was not enough. So I borrowed some money from my brother-in-law, Greg Kahneman, and I bought uh, not a full membership. It was an AM. Well, it later on became an AM. At the time, I paid the highest price. I still remember the price, $85,000 in 1978. When you don't have it, it's quite a lot of money. And, uh, and uh, I started trading as a as a trader. I was never a runner or I didn't work in any company. I straight went to trading and uh, luckily it worked out very, very nicely for, for me from day one. I was, uh, by the way, I was the first and only foreigner on the whole floor with this accent. So whenever I was bid or asked, everyone would look where this funny accent comes from. But uh, I loved it. I thought it's a great place and I still, in fact, I still love this industry. I still love this business. It's unbelievable. 
tell us about some of the those days on the trading floor. I've read some of your background and there are some exciting, interesting, colorful people on the trading floor. So I don't know if there's stories that stand out of days of, of your worst days, your best days on the trading floor. First of all, they, the, I love those people. I mean, those people that were on the floor back then and still, you know, in the industry, they were very special people. They are people that they, a little different. Once you're on the floor, it's almost like a war. You know, like you go there, you have to fight. If you're not fight, they'll run you over. They will ignore you. You cannot survive. And there were basically a, two, there were three types of uh, people starting. When I started, there were three groups. Basically, the first group that they didn't know, just started and didn't know what he's doing. And they started trading within a few days or a couple of weeks, they lost all the money and they were out. Was the second group that basically was just, you know, watching, didn't trade, and they, they didn't lose money, but eventually they were out because the cost of being there was quite expensive and they ran out of money and they were out. And then the only one that survived was the third group that somehow managed to, to trade and make a little money and learn very, very quickly how to do it. And they, so uh, it was tough there in the beginning. There were a lot of uh, traders there from completely different backgrounds. You could find ex-pilots, ex-doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, guys who never finished uh, high school. You could find ex-policemen, everything is there on the floor. And one thing was very, very clear that it's nothing to do with education. It's some kind of abilities that a person has, either he has it or not. And if he doesn't have them, nothing would help him. No education, no connection, no relationship, no nothing. You clearly was were in that third category. You were able to to make it uh, your skills, um, and and uh, eventually. But what what is it that you look at your own personality that allowed you to survive, and not only that, but thrive in our business? And I'm I'm curious too. It's such a physical business being on the trading floor. You're 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 a tall, large person. Uh, tell us yeah. about that, the physical aspect of it as well. Physical thing was easy. I'm quite big and and I couldn't uh, be pushed around too easily. So that was the easy part. The hard part is to understand the, you know, the psychology, get along with the people, and they basically make decisions under pressure. And somehow my my personality, I'm, I'm it worked for me because I'm quite good at making decisions under pressure, I guess. And it worked out very, very nicely from day one, and it was like a dream job. Takes a lot of a lot of abilities or skills, and uh, no one is perfect, obviously. But in trading, just to say, in trading, it's not how much money you make; it's more how long you're making it. And you mentioned you were the first foreigner on the on the floor. How long did it take for this community to accept you? And it's such a meritocracy, as you mentioned. It's like those that can do it, do it, and are part of the club. Those that can't, leave. So how long did it take you to become part of that meritocracy third category? I had a kind of an advantage. My Because of my accent, people figured I sound like an idiot. You must be an idiot. And, and it worked in my favor because I was not an idiot. But the accent and the way they saw it, until they figured out that I'm not an idiot, it was too late. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, 
being a foreigner on the floor is kind of like a, it's always not easy because uh, first of all people didn't understand exactly what I'm saying and uh, until they got used to my accent it took a little time and uh, uh, but I think in the beginning I always in fact I still believe that uh, being underestimated that's my favorite thing to do so I'm, I'm very happy when people are underestimating me well it sounds like your your brother-in-law helped take you under his wing and, and help make introductions in the beginning to um, our whether him or or other role models but were there people that helped you along the way both in the trading floor days as well as the the electronic trading days no it, it's really uh, back in my days uh, my my brother Norrell Kahneman he he tried to help me but he couldn't help me because he was a way above me was knowledge wise and when I I, I needed to learn the ABC and he was already in, you know, I was in first grade, he was in university. They, they, so he couldn't get down to my level. So after a while I gave up. I mean, I couldn't understand what he's talking about. And I gave up and I, and I, I tried to learn myself from, you know, basically seeing what other people are doing, trying to figure out, you know, the numbers and everything. And I'm, I was uh, lucky, I'm very good with numbers. I love numbers. So it worked out very nicely for me. But it's really not much people can help you because there were there is you know people like a brothers and cousins and everything some made it some didn't so it's really it's obviously it's not academic it's more like you, you need certain abilities and either you have it in personality or you don't have it i don't think you can teach somebody to if he doesn't have it to become a successful trader Tell us a little bit about the transition from the floor uh, to electronic trading, your decision to really move the business in a more uh, you know, big electronic trading aspect. And you, I know statistically you were the liquidity for many years of, of many big and continue to be of many big firm or many big exchanges. So tell us that transition and how that went and when, how, what were the decision points for you on that? Yeah, it was like a huge uh, move, I mean, a huge uh, change in our industry, one of the most important changes in the industry. And I think it was absolutely the right one that really helped the industry grow so much. I saw it as an opportunity because up to, uh, in the open archive, you had your captives, traders, or, you know, the only the ones that were on the floor. And if you were not on the floor, it was very hard to trade on the, you know, in the, in the exchange, especially for liquidity providers, like I was, basically I was a liquidity provider. So once we moved to electronic trading, I thought to myself, wow, it's an interesting situation. It's because I'm an Israeli and I know Israel, and I know it's quite a lot of talent, let's say in my country. So uh, I figured, I figured I would try now, instead of bringing the talent to the exchange or bringing the talent to the industry, I'll take the industry to the talent. And basically, uh, I thought it's a great opportunity. I opened my first office in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and tried to, and I built some kind of a, a like a model, how it works, you know, an office. Once it works, and they, and the, big, the biggest advantage back then was like the, the quality of the talent, the talent that I could find, which I think in order to be successful, you had to have that the talent should be the same like Chicago, London or other financial centers or better. But it will be 
less than the level of the, uh, the financial centers, they will not be able to survive. And it turned out that you could, and obviously I found some talent in Tel Aviv, and I saw it works, and then I figured if I can do it in Tel Aviv, why can't I do it in all over the, the world? And basically, I was planning to open maybe 100, 200 offices around the world. The only things that I didn't know back then, I didn't know that one day the elbow trading would come in. And because originally the latency was not an issue to open. So I opened offices, I had offices in Israel, in Romania, in Hungary, in Kenya, in China, in India, in Mauritius, in all different countries. And it worked nicely, even though the latency was much more than, let's say, Chicago, but the quality of the talent offset the, the disadvantage in latency. But when when later on came the elder trading, then it was like a completely different issue and we had to change uh, our strategy. We still were able to change it from a lot of the trading style that we used to, strategies that we used to trade, now we had to change it because the elbow trading moved in and the market share grew and took whatever trades we used to. So what we did, we, and again, you have amazing talent in those countries and you could teach them. And this talent, they, because of their knowledge level, which was so high, they were able to, and they still are, able to trade even though they're in disadvantage of latency. I, I think, uh, our level of knowledge in, in our traders is much, much higher than most of the proprietary groups. So, and especially in the algo trading, which is all technology less. It sounds like you have a good sense of people that you're able to see talented people and, and uh, differentiate, you know, who can make it, who can't. Um, tell me about that. I mean, you've, you've hired it sounds like you've opened businesses globally, uh, trying to differentiate yourself by finding good people. Um, how is it that you've been able to do that? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I, I think that I can go to top universities in those countries and recruit straight from them. Then I know at least at the top universities, they went already, the IQ level is absolutely fine because to get to those top universities in their countries. but. For trading, IQ is not enough. You need EQ. And that's the problem. It's harder to find EQ, to figure out EQ than IQ. We did it. We had to go through, we hired good people that we thought they had a chance, but the, the success rate was the first year we had to let go of about 60, 60% or 70% of the people that we hired. But we still were able to get to a success level higher than it used to be in the industry. Uh, we used to have like tests. We used the psychologists to choose those people. We used the mathematics test. We used the interviews. We used quite a lot of the, uh, we tried to figure out uh, here in Israel. I, I met with a, you know, a high ranking officer in the, a, in the Air Force and tried to figure out how they choose pilots. What kind of tests they're doing for pilots, for Air Force pilots which I thought it's very similar to what we need for uh, the same qualities we need for trading. So we tried a lot of things and uh, a lot of things didn't work. And what we thought it works, it didn't work. But eventually we were able to, our experience and knowledge, we were able to pick up quite a lot of people. But, but by doing it, we used to go to, a, let's say in India, for example, 
We used to uh, go to 50 universities, top universities in India, and do presentations and uh, interview people, thousands of people, and we did it. So by by now, we had a few thousand people that worked in our company over the years, and there are probably tens of thousands and, or more heard about derivatives because we went to uh, universities every year. We used to go to universities and recruit. And they, we spread the word, and I think a lot of people heard about derivatives and learned about derivatives through us over the years. Gina, and I remember when we first met, and I think it was at a uh, a dinner that uh, Lynn Martin and the New York Stock Exchange had had hosted in Chicago, I believe it was. Yeah. I remember you were the biggest liquidity provider um, for for many exchanges, but you decided also to start uh, getting more involved in agency business and started to open up FCM um, both in London and in Chicago. And tell us about the decision to move into not just proprietary trading, but also into the agency business. In fact, it happened the opposite, uh, exactly the opposite. I started uh, the clearing, I used to be a trader and I, and I wanted to move on and try. So I started in the GH Financials in 1993 in London. Uh, I was trading in London uh, on the floor of life. And uh, I knew, uh, so I started the clearing in 93, clearing traders on the floor. Uh, and what happened in the clearing business, uh, the way you used to get more customers is by giving them, you know, kind of like stealing them from another one, from another uh, clearer. And by doing, by giving them a better deal. And uh, what happened after a while, the, the commissions and the, were so low and the risk reward ratio was absolutely didn't make any sense. You had a full risk, 100% risk, and the return was very, very limited. The upside. So I think there must be another way than just getting, you know, customers from somebody else. So I thought, that, and that's the way it started. I thought I would raise my own customers, and that's the way it started. You know, the trading. So I start. I said I know about trading. I can teach traders. They'll be trading, but they will really be customers of the, my clearing business. So the whole thing, in fact. Uh, uh, our proprietary groups and everything in the beginning used to be part of GH Financials, the clearing business. And just later on, the, the proprietary trading and other business became bigger than the clearer and we separated them in 2005. Well, I want to ask as you're thinking back on your career, and I know your career is not in any way over, but are there notable achievements that you are most proud of as you look back? It's a couple of things that I'm very proud of. One of the things that I'm very proud of, that I was able to adjust and adapt for almost 45 years in this industry. And to survive this kind of time, you have to be, you know, you have to adapt to different things. There are a lot of changes happened in the last 45 years, and I'm, I'm very proud that I was able to do it. I'm very proud also that I was able to take advantage of the opportunity that this industry uh, uh, provided. This, uh, this opportunity is an amazing opportunity. It's somebody without you know, any capital can build up some capital and can, be, can, be, can reach financial security within a few years. It's an opportunity that hardly exists or doesn't exist in any other industry. So for me to be able to take advantage of this opportunity, I'm very proud of it for myself. Uh, and 
this industry is very unique in my opinion. I, I love this industry. It's an amazing industry and it provides opportunities that don't exist in other places. So I'm very proud of uh, being able to take a, you know, advantage of the opportunity. Uh, I think, um, you know, and I'm very proud that now, basically I can offer the same opportunity to people around the globe, uh, around the world, the same opportunity to come to our industry, join, and take advantage of the opportunity, this unique opportunity that this industry offers. So I'm, I'm very proud that I could do it. One of my, uh, I think my achievements, or what I consider very, it's a, first of all, that I was able to expand the, the global reach of the listed industries, going to countries that never heard about trading or never heard about derivatives and, and teach them and educate them and train them and so on. So I think it's very, the other thing was, which was very, very important to me is like, you know, this industry gave me so much. I mean, this gave me this opportunity that changed my life completely. So to me, helping, I mean, giving something back to the industry is very, very important. And I saw in a way by, by you know, uh, training those traders and so on around the globe, and, and we are really providing liquidity and we're contributing liquidity to the industry. And to me, it's kind of paying back a little for the opportunity that I was given. It's a huge achievement for me that I can do it. And, um, and I'm happy and we, we are working with the different exchanges where we're now trading in, in around 25 exchanges around you know, the, the globe. And we provide quite a lot of liquidity. And yes, that's to me, it feels good. Beside the financial side of it, the satisfaction that I'm able to give back something to the industry makes me very proud and they give me huge satisfaction. It's fascinating because I've been talking to a lot of Hall of Fame um, candidates that are being inducted this year, and all of them talk about education and wanting to pass on their knowledge to the next generation. Um, it's consistent. Everybody I talk to, that that's an important part of their career and something that they're proud of. And so it's wonderful to hear uh, that that's you know, something that you cherish and something that you're proud of as well. As we think about the next generation of derivatives industry professionals and people who are now entering uh, our markets, you know, is there some wisdom, some, some, something that you pass along to each of those individuals? What I would say to them, and I say to a lot of them, it's definitely not to focus on the financial rewards when you, you start your career. The most important when you start is to find a place that you can learn and you can develop your skills. That's the most important. That will be your personal assets that you can offer later on and get paid quite a lot of money for it. But don't focus on it. Don't go to a place that pays you right now money, but it doesn't give you much of learning or developing skills. And they don't stay in a comfort zone. I mean, once you're comfortable, change your, you know, look for a, something new because Whatever we know, if we don't, keep, if we are not moving forward and learning and developing, then we're basically compared to the industry, we go backwards. So I would say to a young person, just go to a place that you can learn there and you can develop skills and just, you know, keep doing it. That, that's the, this will give you the most in your career. And, and of course, thinking long-term, it's very, very important in my opinion. My last question to you is, um, 
about our industry and when why you love our industry i mean i have my own personal views of why i love this industry but you have a wonderful story and i just want to give you some opportunity to close with why it is you love uh, the exchange traded derivatives industry first of all i love all the people that this industry attracts and i think it's very special people this industry attracts we're talking about the industry that they, has a lot of money in it. It's all, it's all about huge amount of money moving in this industry. I feel like it's a, a very level playing field. It's really, if you are good, you can move on. It's not, it's really up to you. And and the, I don't know about other industries that are giving you the same, you can just move based on your abilities and not connection, not relationship. And you can really do terrific if you are good. And I think this is very unique to our industry. Uh, and I love these things that, you know, it's all, it's really depend on you. It's nobody else asking you who you know, what you did before. It's like now, can you do it or not? If you can do it, you'll be successful financially, not just financially, professionally from all different and you will have amazing, uh, you know, satisfaction out of it. So the, the level playing field, I think it's the most important thing in our industry, in my opinion. I just want to say on behalf of the entire industry, thank you for all that you've done to, to grow our industry, to support our industry, to make sure that it's in a better place than it was uh, yesterday. And everything that you have done has really furthered and advanced our incredible business and the people who support it. So thank you so much. We appreciate it and congratulations. Thank you, Walt. Thank you very much. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.